Welcome back to another episode of the Book Dialogue Link Podcast. We have a very special guest. This is the first guest introduced by another guest, Nina Collins. We have the wonderful Jacqueline Woods, and she's an author. An author has written many books. These books have won many awards, and, and she's sitting here with us. How are you doing? Uh, thank you so, so much for coming. Oh, thanks for having me. I, I'm good. I'm glad to be talking to two brilliant brothers. So <laughs> I'm, I'm excited. I'm always excited to talk about poetry and literature in general. So I'm good today. Right now, I am good, which is a great thing to be in a pandemic. Mm, mm. Yeah, no, very grateful for that. So what book did you choose for this conversation? Um, when was the first time you read it? Why is it, you know, so meaningful to you. So the book I chose for this conversation is Hurdy Gurdy by Tim Siebels. And um, I feel like one of the reasons I chose this book is it's, it's such a through line in so much of my writing. And the reason that is, is because I first got introduced to Tim Siebels in 1991, when I was a fellow at the Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown. And for those of you who don't know, the Fine Arts Work Center is a residency where um, 20 writers and visual artists are chosen and you move to Provincetown for seven months from October through May. And the hope was that it would create a community that would live in Provincetown, right? That they, they would lure artists there through this residency and people would say, oh, you know, this is cool, I'm gonna stay. And the year that I was a fellow, it was kind of a fluke year because if for those who don't know, Cape Cod is very, very white. And um, and the, the residency had hosted maybe two um, people of the global majority at one time, but not ever more than that. And people had, I guess by some people had dropped out, some somehow it ended up being five of us out of this 20 people. And one of those people was Tim Siebels, who I had never heard of. We were all young in our writing at that time, in our writing careers. But one thing I about poetry was I always felt like it was a language I wasn't meant to understand. And a lot of the poets I had read as a younger person seemed to be pretentious and, and seemed to be overly white. Um, so we would have to do readings every so often. And Tim got up and started reading and I was like, oh shoot, I understand what he's saying. <laughs> I understand what he's talking about. Like I can understand poetry. And, um, and it was this introduction that felt like a party I was suddenly invited to. And so when he published Hurdy Gurdy, um, which was um, in 1992, I was still a fellow, I was still in Provincetown and he did a reading and I just fell in love with this book. And I've bought this book for everybody, everybody, you know, 11 year old boys, 50 year old women, um, teachers, um, a cop, like anyone, because I'm like, here is a dialogue we can have. And, and I love it. Wow. That's such a great point about poetry being kind of held over kids' heads, heads as like this, you know, very deep esoteric thing. And then as soon as you read the right poet, right, it changes the entire game. Because like I was, you know, starting this book of poetry. I actually don't know 
the last book of poems that I have read, but I was reading it like I was reading news. And I was like, that this is not right. You got to slow down. You got to like pause. Because as soon as, in you know, uh, the poem I thought I thought of was to the movies. There's this line. Um, we're talking about the sweet brown rice at the bottoms of empty Cokes. And I was like, wow, that's not esoteric at all. He's literally just describing a thing that I'd always glanced at, but right, like, it's so it's just so rich just just the the detail there um mm-hmm. and then yeah. you never unsee it right that's right. the thing about you're changed forever because you're never going to see that ice at the bottom of a coke the same way again yeah yeah for me for me that line was in shape um where he says when the door marked men opens i am kissing the silver curl rising from the fountain and I like read it and then was like, hold up. And then I like read it again. And I was like, oh, shit, he's talking about drinking water. I was like, I was like, what? Because at first, at first I was like, oh, my God, that was the most poetic way that he could have put that. But then I thought about it. I was like, that's literally what you're doing. <laughs> and that's why yes. it makes so much sense. That's why it was so seamless for like understanding that image was because that's literally what you're doing. You like, you know, go on, <laughs> go exactly. on. Exactly. And kissed the silver, silver, uh, silver curl. And I was like, wow, this guy is really doing something here. <laughs> he is. He, he is um, really bringing the language. Um, <clears throat> so can I read the poem that I was like, I'm not going to curse on here. Um, but I was like, oh, shoot. You know, he's he's talking my language. I know what he I know this. Yeah. Um, so it's on page 24 and it's called Meep. And I don't know, maybe this was just my childhood, but I don't, you know, um, I don't know if people remember Roadrunner and Coyote. Yeah. And it was a cartoon and the road, the Coyote was always trying to get this Roadrunner and, um, and, and never got him. And so this, this poem is, and then there was um, um, the serial commercial about tricks cereal and it was like silly rabbit tricks are for kids and so it was this rabbit that was always trying to get the cereal and the kids were like no basically this is for humans but it was about you know being constantly denied something and for so this poem really spoke to me I used to root for the rabbit in his sneaky quest for that fruity cereal raspberry red lemon yellow orange orange and I hated those big-headed little brats especially the boy when he'd say silly rabbit tricks are for kids I always wish he'd smile. Okay, one bowl won't hurt because it really wouldn't have. I used to console myself believing the silly rabbit swiped a bunch between commercials. And I used to cross my fingers for the coyote too, sometimes running like a maniac, his legs bulging from acne muscle builder. He gets so close, I could feel the roadrunner's tail feathers tickling his nose, but suddenly, meet me. And the road was smoke all the way to the horizon. The coyote seemed so ruined the way he'd nod his brow while his pointed face went slack. I would shake my head and wonder if he ever got to eat anything ever. And why didn't he just give up on that bird or occasionally go for something slow? So I just, I love that. I mean, that's not the whole poem. I won't read the whole poem to you, but it's just such a great way of, you know, that intersectionality be between like childhood and looking back on childhood from this adult perspective and understanding that that's what's happening to us constantly right that longing that that 
something constantly escaping us that we think we desire or need. Um, and the world saying, you ain't getting this. <laughs> so. Yeah, we we grew up watching uh, Wile E. Coyote like chase after Roadrunner. And I don't know why we've never like laughed so hard. And it, it's it's hilarious because it's just a lot of violence. He never gets them. Um, but there's actually like a, a Seth MacFarlane sketch where uh, Wiley Coyote finally catches Roadrunner and then they show his life after the fact. And it's hilarious because like, um, you know, he's spending his whole life trying to like get this, this damn bird. And when he finally does, he realizes that he has like no meaning left. <laughs> so it's like, it's like, it's messed up. It's kind of sick, but it's like, it's so funny. And, and it's just like a great, it's kind of a great way of like, you know, adding on to a show that we really appreciated as kids. Um, and Meep, Meep, you know, especially given that it's earlier on in the book, um, definitely registered for me, honestly, because I thought of Kendrick Lamar, serial and cartoons and serial, right? Um, that's like a yes. old Lamar song. And it's it's building on that same legacy that Tim Siebel's was laying down with that poem, right? Mm. Because it's about recognizing this like very intimate cultural space that, you know, Miles and I and our sister enjoyed as kids. And kind of mm -hmm. like tying us in with all these other people who had that same exact experience, you know. Wow, it's so true. Yeah. It's so true how it becomes universal, you know, in this right. way. And I think that's what good writing does. It really shines a light on a specific to show the universality of it. Right. So would you say that's that's part of the through line that you have like used from this book to translate into your own writing? Yes, definitely. And, you know, I, I remember writing Brown Girl Dreaming and just whining and whining, like, you know, why am I obsessed with writing this book? No one's ever going to read it. It's, you know, all about my life and who cares about my life. And, um, and you know, people are just like, keep writing. It's going to, it's going to work mm -hmm. out fine. Um, and and I, the thing I think I was fearful of was how specific it was. And the thing that did give me strength was poetry because of its specificity. And um, and because in, in a book like Hurdy Gurdy, he's talking about race, he's talking about love, he's talking about desire, um, he's talking about longing and all of these, I know desire and longing are kind of similar, but like <clears throat> sexual desire and, you know, other kind of physical desires as well. Um, and I, I knew that I had, if I could hit those chords in the narrative, mm. then it would speak to more people than myself. Even though when I'm writing, I'm not thinking about my reader, but I am thinking about what makes this interesting, what makes it interesting to me, because if I'm bored, I know my reader is going to be bored. Um, and, and poetry, really, every time I got stuck, I would go back to poetry. And that's the same case for everything from Red at the Bone to another Brooklyn, you know, my adult stuff and my stuff for young people and picture books, like all of it line by line is very specific. Um, and I'm also knowing that I can do stuff with words that's going to make you see the moment differently with a different kind of light on it. Um, I'm trying to think of an example. Um, <clears throat> 
in Red at the Bone, I started, you know, the first line is, but that afternoon there was an orchestra playing. And that's a very intentional thing of starting a narrative in the middle of the sentence, in the middle of a moment. So you know you're not being dropped down at the beginning of something. You're being dropped right into the center of it. And, and that's something I learned from poetry, that you can play with time and space that way. And as long as your language is intentional um, and and something people want to read, then it's going to be digested. Mm, mm. Yeah, yeah. We, you know, Jen and I have been thinking a lot recent, recent, recently about um, like why mem mem memoirs are so popular now. Um, because we're we're like, what is what is that saying about readers when they really feel they want a connection with like someone's life to even know more things about a writer than they might know about like their close close friends and I'm like curious now because you were saying how this this book was harder to write like what do you think the difference is between like writing brown brown girl dreaming and writing some of your other novels and you know you also took a very original take on the form in general by by writing it you know in poetry right and I think that really gives um your own story your own life room to breathe literally just on, on the page, right? There's so there's so much space that's not taken up that you can really focus on the words and your story in a different in a different way. So, yeah, I would just love for for you to speak a little bit more about that. Such a great question. Um, you know, in terms of, it is interesting that people want to <laughs> crack the code of the writer, right? And <laughs> asking questions in terms of how the story got on the page or the choices we make. And, and I think we lie a lot and wax poetic about stuff we don't really understand ourselves. <laughs> and, and then there is the stuff that we truly understand. Like I do know that Brown Girl Dreaming was written in verse because it's memory. And that's how memory comes to us. It comes to us in these small moments with all of this white space around it. And, and that white space is the unknown. And it's like, I can link this memory to that memory to some extent, but there are missing pieces there. And, and what my job as a writer is to do is to make you feel like this story is gonna be okay, even with those missing pieces. And I think that speaks to people's lives, right? There are places where we have serious gaps in memory are places where we've decided we don't wanna remember something. And, and then our narrative continues. Um, and then the thing about Brown Girl Dreaming was, you know, I rewrote that book so many times. I had to rewrite it to get that narrative arc going from before I was born to the moment when I realized this is why I'm a writer. Um, I had to write it because I had so many characters that had to have a beginning, middle, and end. I had to write it um, so that the transitions from Ohio to Greenville to New York felt seamless and um, and matter. And even the, the constant resistance, that was the resistance of the civil rights movement. That was the resistance of me to um, religion, of the resistance of me to, you know, being a slow reader who wanted to be a writer and people saying that doesn't really jive. Um, so 
I, I think in that book, I was so much in my head and conscious of what I was doing, as opposed to fiction, where I'm thinking, I don't want to know too much. I, I want to let my subconscious and my unconscious help me tell this story so that I can say, I don't really know where that character came from, but she's working here or he's working here. Um, and so when I'm writing fiction, usually I have a voice in my head that's a character um, and, and that character saying something. And when you have, um, when, now, and then you have another character you put in the room and you have everything, right? You have dialogue between the two characters. Then you're gonna have conflict because eventually they're not gonna agree. And you already have your setting, which is the space that they're having this conversation in. Um, with Brown Girl Dreaming, all of those settings were places I remembered and something like Red at the Bone, there were places I had to paint. And, um, and then there's another Brooklyn, which is kind of a combination between the two because another Brooklyn is poetry. And that's the, you know, that's the white space, that's the intentionality of the language. Um, and then it's nonfiction because all the spaces are true. I wanted to, when I wrote Another Brooklyn, I really wanted to have Bushwick remembered because people were talking about discovering quote unquote Bushwick. And I was like, no, this place was here, you know, A, unless you're one of the Lenape people, you did not discover this place, right? That's the indigenous tribe that was here long before people came in Columbus, that neighbor, those areas. So um, but but I wanted I wanted the Bushwick of the 70s to the 90s to be remembered because it was changing very quickly. And that neighborhood that I had known as a young person was quickly getting erased. And so um, so that's all nonfiction. And then the fiction is the story of the four girls, four characters that I made up. And so I had to figure out how to draw them in my with words so that they could feel real. So it was a lot of different parts of my brain working for that book. Um, that was very different than Brown Girl Dreaming and Red at the Bone, yet it made sense because going from Brown Girl Dreaming, which was a memoir, I couldn't jump directly into fiction. I had to have kind of a segue and being able to remember Bushwick was that segue. Does that answer your question, Miles? Uh, uh, yes, <laughs> Jan and I are just like, we're, we just got chills right now. That was, that answer was, wow, you took us on a whole journey there. Um, you know, I've, I've only lived, you know, a couple of decades of, of, of life, but I think your story there about Brooklyn and trying to remember the Bushwick of the past, it's like, so you spent already 30 years with Hurdy Gertie. You, you spent even longer. I would be you know very interested to, to hear on like how your relationship with books and your relationship with place have um intertwined changed over that period that same period of time is kind of going off the dome here no it, it it's makes sense as a question mm -hmm. um <laughs> i i yeah it's definitely intertwined like i can't be in my head about literature without being in my head about place. And that's, um, 
literature I'm reading and that's literature, that's stuff I'm writing. Like I'm thinking about a tree grows in Brooklyn and um, Betty Smith's book that takes place in, you know, the early 1900s um, actually it takes, yeah, it takes place around the 1930s, right? 1940s. But um, it's such a book about Williamsburg, Brooklyn and Greenpoint at a particular time. Um, and it tells the story of this very poor family. Um, and in that book, I, you know, I am Franny Nolan, like I, I, I am that child. And and our connection is Brooklyn. And, and hers was a very different time and a very different race of people. Um, and still like that, it's the place that connects us. And then I, so that's Francie Nolan. And then we go to, um, Daddy was a numbers runner, um, which takes place, uh, that, I think it's Louise Merriweather which takes place in Harlem during the same period. And it's, it's you know, Tree Grows in Brooklyn is the white version. Uh, Daddy was a numbers runner, was the black version. And that's black poverty and, um, and place and people. And, and I am Franny in that book, you know, one's Francie and one's Franny. And I, sorry, sometimes I confuse them. But, um, but when I reread those narratives, it is looking at, people inside of place and, and figuring out how I can learn from that because we can't have people without place. Like we all come from somewhere, even if we're coming from a whole lot of places that, that coming from all those places is a somewhere. Um, and, and so when I sit down to write, like I have to have that sense of place in my mind. And a lot of times in a lot of my books, it's Brooklyn because the thing about Brooklyn is if I write about it, if I write about Park Slope 10 years from now, it's going to be a different place. <laughs> you know, those same streets, look, looking at Brooklyn, um, looking, I mean, looking at Bushwick, looking at Bed-Stuy, looking at Brownsville, um, the, the neighborhoods and the people changed so rapidly that um, you are telling a different story. It's like you're writing um, on like a treadmill or one of those, what do they call in airports, right? <laughs> you're just like going along it and, and you're telling the story, but if you run back to it and start again, you're gonna tell a different story. Yeah, you talk about moving walkways, the most fun part of airports. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, like go on those and then turn around, go backwards, like I'm moonwalking or something. <laughs> It is so true. It was the only place I let my kids act the fool. <laughs> it's like, go for it on the moving walkway. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, that's such a great question because I, I think um, when you think of writing, we always talk about how writing is a muscle, right? And if you don't use it, it atrophies. <laughs> and the more you use it, the more it the stronger it gets. And I feel like I have so much muscle memory around people and place and story that when I sit down to write, I'm in all um, three of those spaces at once, where I think some writers have to kind of figure out each space. Um, that's not the case for me. It's like, okay, here's a character. Here is where they are. 
Now just kind of figure out why they're there and what they want and how they're gonna get it. I'm seeing if I have another Brooklyn cause I wanna um, read a little bit from that. Is that cool? Please, please. Okay. Yeah, of course. I never thought about that before. Mm. Um, no, no, just, I mean, like, like I obviously have, right. I mean, I just made that class placemaking, but like the way that she phrased it just now, like that was really putting language to, uh, something that I really like felt, you know what I'm saying? Um, I'm saying. I don't, I don't have another Brooklyn, but I have read at the bone. Another Brooklyn's in the other house, you know, a more organized person would have <laughs> brought it over, but I'm going to just read the um, <clears throat> first, um, first paragraph from um, another, from Red at the Bone. Uh, so, so it opens with, bro, how you doing? You holding on? Man, you know how it goes. One day chicken, next day bone. Two old men talking. Um, and it's interesting when I wrote, wrote, you know, that that's what opens the book. And when I wrote that, I had originally written two black men, two old black men talking. And I realized that to qualify them would mean that I was talking to a white audience. Right, because in our in our spaces we don't have to qualify who we are, and so so I um you know I took out that adjective, and it's interesting because um it's one of the things that I talk about a lot with writers because I don't know if it happened when you were growing up, but when I was growing up the qualifiers always happened with the quote unquote other right so a boy walked down the street a girl walked down the street a black boy walked down the street so so that the the narrative that you're getting is that unless otherwise specified, it's whiteness and 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 heteronormative, right? So um, and so what I started telling students when I used to teach was like, if you're going to qualify black folks, qualify white folks and 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 really figure out why you're you who you're what space are you in, you know, and and who who is this story for? Um, and a lot of times, People are not thinking about that. They're thinking about themselves as something, some part of a majority. Okay, so yeah, I'll just read that first. But that afternoon there was an orchestra playing, music filling the brownstone, black fingers pulling violin bows and strumming cellos, dark lips around horns, a small brown girl with pale pink nails on flute, Malcolm's younger brother, his dark skin glistening, blowing somberly into a harmonica. A broad-shouldered woman on a harp. From my place on the stairs, I could see through the windows, curious white people stopping in front of the building to listen. As I descended, the music grew softer, the lyrics inside my head becoming a whisper. I knew a girl named Nikki, I guess you could say she was a sex fiend. No vocalist. The little girl didn't know the words. The broad-shouldered woman, having once belted them out loud while showering, was now saved and refused to remember them. Iris wouldn't allow them to be sung, and Malcolm's brother's sweet seven-year-old mouth was full. Still, they moved through my head as though Prince himself were beside me. I met her in a hotel lobby, masturbating with a magazine. 
And in the room, there was the pink and the green of my grandmother's sorority, the black and the gold of my grandfather's alpha brothers, gray haired and straight backed, flashing gold capped teeth and baritone, hey, fire, hey, as I made my entrance. High pitched calls of skiwi answering back to them. Another dream for me, and they're calling out to each other. Of course, you're going to pledge one day, my grandmother said to me over and over again. When I was a child, she surprised me once with a gift wrap hoodie, pale pink with my grandmother as an AKA in bright green letter letters. That's just legacy, Melody. Look back at me on that last day in May. So it was a little longer than that first paragraph. Mm. There's something about having books read aloud to you. I was I was reading your um your book Show Way, beautiful book about your story of your fam family. And that scene where Big Mama is reading around the fire. We don't have enough of that. Just being able to hear the the written word just gives it a different kind of power. And like, you know, as as you're reading aloud now, you know, as soon as you say Nikki was a text fiend, I already hear the print song. And then you bring it up, I'm like, wow, you know what I'm saying? It like basically echoed, echoed back. Um, but a lot of the press for Reddit, for Reddit though, Bone was, you know, harking on this was a book for adults, right? And that you were like a children's book author. So is, is there any difference to you, like writing to an adult audience for writing to like kids? And I feel like one thing is that I would assume is like clarity, you would want like, I guess the children's book to be simpler. Part of me also wants to assume that there's no difference at all. It's, it's such a great question because um, it, it doesn't, I don't simplify it for young people unless it's, you know, like even with Shoei, when Suni's great grandmother was seven, she was sold from the Virginia land to a plantation in South Carolina without her ma or pa, with, but with two needles her grandma had given her and thread dyed bright red with berries from the choke cherry tree. Like I'm not downplaying enslavement or any of that. And then, you know, I big, the, the scene you're talking about at night, Big Mama read the children's story, story she'd tell in a whisper about children growing up and getting themselves free and the children leaned in and listened real hard. Um, you know, I'm talking about resistance. I'm talking about enslavement. I'm talking about the sale of black and brown bodies. I'm talking about reconstruction. Um, um, and, and so, I, I the 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 language isn't simpler like that. That's a that's a complicated book because um, because you know that I'm telling the story of my family's history along the maternal line. What's different in adult books usually is um, it's told from the point of view of an adult, right? So so it, even when you look at something like Another Brooklyn, it's the story of four 15 year old girls. Um, but it's told from the point of view of August, who is 30. And when you look at um, middle grade young adult picture books, it's usually the, the child's point of view. So with Suni, when Suni was seven, that's all those kids are seven um, going down the line. I choose, you know, seven is the age where I start talking about their lives. Um, when you look at something like Each Kindness, they're, um, the person telling the story is probably around nine years old. Um, but even though it's a complicated story of mischances, right, of people coming to realize that tomorrow isn't promised, like it's still a story that's told from that perspective of that nine-year-old. And then when you look at something like Red at the Bone, 
um, in that scene where Melody's having her cotillion, she's 16. Um, and then, but, but it's told from so many different perspectives and most of them are adult. There's Po'boy, there's Sabie, there's Iris, Melody's mother, um, you know, there's Kathy Marie and Aubrey. And since most of those are adult perspectives, if everybody in this book was 16, then it would be considered a young adult book. But if they were 16, look, if they were 30 looking back on themselves as 16, then it's adult. Um, so I, I, I pay attention to the language. Like um, when you look at something like The Other Side, which is a picture book, the opening page is that summer, the fence that stretched through our town seemed bigger. We lived in a yellow house on one side of it and white people lived on the other. And mama said, don't climb over that fence when you play. She said it wasn't safe. So I'm talking about segregation. <laughs> I'm talking about race. I'm talking about, um, and I'm talking about activism because it's about two girls who end up you know, defying adults and saying, you know what, we're gonna do us. Um, and still line by line. So the first line that summer, the fence that stretched to our town seemed bigger. What it makes the person want to do is the same thing you want to do when you get to the end of a page in an adult book that um, that line makes you want to go to the next line. Um, and so here it's just spread in a, in a book. It's just in an adult book or a book for older kids is spread out page by page. You want to turn the page. But when you're talking to younger kids line by line, because they have a much shorter attention span. And that's why picture books are the hardest to write, right? Because you're dealing with a very short attention span and you're saying, I want you to sit down and read 32 pages. And I don't know if it's whack, I'm not doing it. Like I, I'm not doing it as an adult with a hundred pages. So, <laughs> wow. so that's, wow. that's it. Wait, we, we didn't know you were a rapper though. Do you just like know all of your lines off the dome? Like that's, that's dope. <laughs> that's like so I know, I know. I got too much in my head. I, I know mo a lot of my books I can I can recite from. Yeah, yeah. I, mm, I've memorized a lot of them. And I, I started doing it because I would go speak. And I was like, I don't want to carry all these books with me. <laughs> and then also the rewriting. And, and, and also everything I write, I read mm. out loud because it has to sound a certain way as well as look a certain way on the page. So yeah, I have a lot of it up here. Yeah. I mean, what I really appreciated about you, like, you know, telling a lot of these stories is that it kind of showed me that whether it's like a picture book or a memoir form or fiction or even poetry, like when you hear it spoken aloud, it's all equally beautiful, right? Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it does have me thinking, you know, what are, what are those differences then? Um, I guess, as you've described, it is about connecting to different audiences or being able to transmit it in different ways. But, you know, I, I had that feeling reading Hurdy Gurdy, right, where it's like, it feels like he's talking out loud to you, like he's just telling stories. And I got that same feeling from you right now. Right. Um, and I think maybe that's what is something that I appreciate about like all of my favorite, um, you know, authors and books and stories is that they flow beautifully, like when they're spoken aloud, you know. Mm -hmm. Do you all tend to read them out loud? No, I don't, at least. And re reading out loud and, you know, uh, Jen and I watched your really great TED, 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 TED talk too. Everyone listening to this now got to go see that about reading slowly. And I feel like reading stuff out loud forces you 
to read slowly and really think about the, the words. Um, and I feel like uh, something about everything that you're saying here, you're, you know, you talk about reading slowly, rewriting, rereading. It sounds like these, these things can make it a chore or like a bore, but the way you live and write and think, it seems like a delight. I'm like, man, I need to stop thinking about reading faster all the time and getting through books. I, I feel like a thing that I really don't like about reading and reading culture is like this, this want and need to say you completed a book. Like there's some like, oh, I finished it. And because you just want to say that you finished a book, you write, you just had that same urge to not even delight in it. You don't even enjoy it because you just want to be able to say it at like a dinner and like a dinner party. Yeah, it's so true. It, I, I remember my son in fourth grade, all the boys were carrying around these thick, you know, Harry Potter um, books and, and who else was it? Uh, Percy Jackson. And they were like, you know, I read 200 pages last night and, you know, I know they were lying, but anyway, it was like this, you know, part of me was like, yay, they're doing, having this reading competition and they're tr saying they're re reading it, but, but they, a lot of them weren't, and, and I know my son wasn't because my son he reads differently. And so, um, and we were reading to him and I know how much I read to him a night, so <laughs> that wasn't happening, but it was so interesting. And even with my books, because my books are short or something like Curdy Gertie, um, I just want to spend time with each poem and let it, you know, marinate and resonate. And I always say when people are like, um, Oh, I read your book in an hour. I'm like, go back and read it again because it took me three years to write that. <laughs> say that again. I'm shocked. I, I'm shocked someone would even say or brag. Oh, yeah, I read it in an hour. <laughs> All the time. But, oh. <laughs> but, you know, I had given Ta-Nehisi Coates, read it. We, we switched books with friends and and he had given me The Water Dancer, which is such a beautiful book. I mean, I love Between the World and Me. I love everything he writes, but The Water Dancer is some next level. And the great thing about The Water Dancer is the audiobook. It's Joe Morton reading, who I love. He just has this great voice. But um, I, gave, I gave, we switched books. And when he got mine, he's like, oh, you trying to write one of those books? I'm not going to use the word. People are going to try to finish. <laughs> He's like, you're trying to write one of those books people are going to finish. Because <laughs> like, it was so much thinner than his. And he knew that people were going to lie about his book because it was like 300 pages. Yeah. So. Yeah. Do you read a, a lot of the reviews for your for your books? Because um, we've, right, we've been thinking a lot about why what our problem is with like book, book, book critics and book reviews. Because like a lot of them, I feel like just trying to sell books or, or they're just trying to say if they're good or bad and right. They don't talk about mm -hmm. a real texture. And also like, I feel for a lot of the novels, all of it is always trying to talk about like a politically perfect point of view that this novel doesn't encapsulate encapsulate. It's like, it can't be perfect because it's not politically like aligned with everything I believe in. And I'm like, is that what the art's for? Just to like make political statements, right? Like, no. So I, I'm very interested to, to hear your own, you know, relationship to critics and if, if you care for them or not. It's so funny. It's, it's, 
it's nothing I can do, right? So, and this is why I don't read reviews. I mean, if I get a really good review, um, my editor sends it to me and says, this is a really good review, you should read it. And then I'll read it because it's just basically making me feel good. But in terms of people looking at what I didn't do in the book, there is nothing I can do about that. I'm not going to rewrite the book. It's not going to teach me anything about the next book I'm going to write because that's a whole different story. And in terms of, um, you know, the politics around, you know, I always say, if I didn't do it, that opens the door for you to do it, right? So so go do you. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, th- I think it can be kind of, um, I always tell people don't read Goodreads too, because, you know, that's everybody and their grandchild writing a review or something. <laughs> but back in the day, it used to be a lot more a jury of your peers. And sometimes those peers were like ex-girlfriends. I'm like, ah, no, no, they did not give my book to her to review. <laughs> so it can get tricky. So no, I, I have a lot of self-protection around that. Okay, okay. That's, that's hilarious. That's good. I mean, nothing, nothing wrong with making yourself feel good too when it's like a nice review, you know? <laughs> you just take you take the good and then like <laughs> get everything else, especially when you have someone else filtering that for you. I love that. Um, exactly. And we're fragile. I mean, we, we talk a good game, but I think so much of being a writer is about like, you know, pulling your skin back and saying to the world, you know, look what I'm made of and and they can do and that can, that can be scary so it, it definitely is mm-hmm. there are definitely state steps I take to protect myself um, around people being mean around my work so you've 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 dealt like a lot with you know schools and children children and you know just through all of your books so what is like one thing that you think, you know, most schools are doing that they shouldn't, shouldn't be doing that they should stop doing to better, you know, um, better teach books, like uh, have students learn uh, and, edu- and educate them, them, uh, themselves better while reading. Cause I, I feel like, um, again, growing growing up you know certain classics are you know shoved down your throat you must read this and I feel I feel I feel like reading especially as a young person you kind of come to hate it because it's this thing that you should do it's moralized and then right at school there are a ton of books you don't even want to want to want to read so like what is from all of your years you know dealing with education is some big (laughs) that's such a great question it is so true reading as punishment is the worst thing you know and and remember writing as punishment when I was growing up it's like you're going to write an essay and it's like okay way to teach me to hate writing is use it as punishment and I do think um people have to recognize that the empire is dead like and the canon is different and um and we have to expand, we have to give young people choice. I think one thing that doesn't happen a lot is um, older kids aren't allowed to read picture books, you know, and, and there's so much to be garnered in reading picture books about how we write, uh, about poetry, about the world, and, and someone getting handed war and peace in high school who hasn't even read, you know, um, 
a chapter book is daunting and, and it's heartbreaking, right? And it makes a person feel lesser than that, the, that they can't be in that same space as other class mates. Um, so I think I think it's really one thing I've seen done really well with one book. Um, I know Cleveland did it and Philadelphia. Um, they would select one book that the whole town would read and it would be an adult book. And then they'd have the middle grade equivalent and then they have the picture book equivalent. And they'd say to people, choose any of these. And it would be amazing if classrooms took that same model and said, here, look, we're, we're going to um, read a book about um, the civil rights movement. Here's March for, you know, here's um, the warmth of other, other great migration. Here's the warmth of other sons, you know, here's Showway or, or, or this is the rope, which has like 25 words and it's a story of the great migration. So, so that people can read where they are. And I think we don't stay where we are. We move from there. And I think that, um, allowing young people to do that would make such a difference. When we talk to Jason Reynolds, you know, he talks about finishing his first book when he was in college, you know, he he's a great writer now. And so this idea that you're not going to be whatever the thing is that you can be if you're not reading those quote unquote classics and um, at, a, at this particular age, it's a lie. Um, so we need to shift and rethink how we think about literature and, and our readers, because we are going to lose them. Like we're living in the age of TikTok and Twitter and up for 140 something characters. And so we're going to lose people if we, if we don't meet them where they are and respect that. Yeah. I mean, talk about a word that's holding us back, the canon. Like it's literally a big, heavy machine of violence. Like if that isn't the worst image for thinking about how to like nurture like growing people um i don't know what is right i mean you know and and, and i think what you're getting at is because we we talk about this a lot so we're, we're about to get really excited but what you're getting at too is that you know uh reading books like you know like many other things but especially with books given how intimate of a conversation it can be between yourself and you know who you're reading um it's really a practice in like trusting yourself right because you know better than anybody your interests, you know, your 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 energy just for like reading what you want, as well as knowing when you want to like, you know, step into something that might be a little outside of your comfort zone, right? And when you have older people who don't really see you as a person uh, telling you that you should read this stuff um, for, you know, seemingly apparently, you know, uh, abstract and completely uncalled for reasons, it's kind of like, why right um and if you're not seen in that kind of a context you're going to go somewhere where you are seen um but i think that that's you know kind of the tragedy of a lot of schooling is that i i feel like for me reading books has been one of the few places where i have felt fully seen um and can always feel seen by the books that i read um and you know I, yeah i guess what you're getting at is like how to make that more of an opportunity for for, for, for all students, right? All children. Oh man, you are so right. Yes, that's exactly what I'm trying to say too. And now, you know, there's that whole pushback of, because we're, we're having such a nice flow with books that 
let young people be seen that wrote, we talk about um, Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop, who talks about the importance of young people having both mirrors and windows in their literature, right? Mirrors so that they could see reflections of themselves and windows so that they can see into other worlds. And for so many of the people from the global majority, we've had windows into white worlds as opposed to mirrors that reflect our, our own worlds. And, and she also talks about sliding glass doors, right? Walking into those worlds and engaging in them. Um, and I think that as now, now what I'm seeing is the more and more we begin to be offered those books that offer us reflections of ourselves, you know, there's this pushback against books that talk about race. So, and under the guise of quote unquote CRT, which is ridiculous, ridiculous because ain't nobody in law school talking about this, right? So it's all parents who haven't read these books, but books that they're saying I'm making white kids feel bad because we are talking, telling the truth about this country. Um, so it, it is an interesting time when people, more um, people are reading because they are saying, wait a second, this person is telling my story and I see myself in it. And, and I think this celebration of self is not going to get, um, it's not gonna get squashed. I think we, we are on our way to something amazing in terms of literature and us, being able to tell our stories and read our stories. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's it's honestly crazy how human human beings just love to create villains out of nothing. Like CRT, like they made it sound like a freaking dis dis yeah, exactly. Like it's like what? <laughs> like it's not that it's not that deep. I'm just trying to teach you know history. I you know just trying to tell the story how it was fully you know fully happened, but. Um, <laughs> Ask a, to ask a more fun question though, um, what is a question that you would want to ask another writer, either living or not with us? Yeah, what, what question would you ask that, that writer and why? I, I, I think I've been watching, you know, cause I'm such a Baldwin fan, even though I know he uses a lot of adjectives and I'm a minimalist. Um, I, would, I would want to ask James Baldwin, how do I as a writer continue the work he was doing as a writer um, and as an essayist and as a speaker? You know, I, I, every time I, he was so ahead of his time and, um, and was so composed and, and so thoughtful and so not in a hurry to explain stuff, um, but very intentional. And, and I, I know I'm trying to do some of it, but I, I would love the foresight of the ancestors in that way to know how, how to, how to, continue the work because I think they can see the future in this way that can they be like, okay, Jackie, in 10 years, you might wanna, you know, look this way, look that way and think about this because here's what's changing now. Um, you know, cause we've changed so quickly in such a short amount of time. And I, I would love, I would love the wisdom. All right, so this is, so this is gonna sound funny, funny too, but it's a total coincidence, but when I asked that question and when I thought of that question, the exact person I was thinking about was James, James Bowen. Oh, yeah. Yes, yes, because I, I mean, Baldwin, I don't know, it's just the kind of writer, as soon as you get his voice, 
in your head, it's a little haunting. Dude's writing though, like it slaps you in the face, not to hurt, hurt you, but to wake you up. But he also gives like the warmest hug because it's just, it, it's so encompassing. It, it's like, I, I, I wouldn't even know what to ask be, be, because it feels like he, he covered so much ground. Like any question that you would ask him, he already asked himself like 40 times. That was literally the exact person who I had in mind, even when I was asking that, um, how Bowen, in a sense, came at Richard Wright um, and was kind of trying to clear ground for him, for him, for himself as like a writer. And uh, he wanted to critique Native Son like the Black novel was being portrayed at that time. Yeah, so what happened with that? Did he get canceled? Because Wright Mm. was so beloved by some folks, you know, and, and Baldwin was so doing something so different mm-hmm. than what Wright was doing. He was not trying to create, you know, villains out of us. You know, it's so even, and also um, with um, Ellison, right? He's like invisible man, invisible to whom, right? Mm-hmm. He's like, he's not invisible. So who is this story for? And I remember hearing that I was like, yep, because <laughs> right? that book was pounded on me in college. Interesting. I'm like, I don't get this. I don't, I don't get <laughs> this. <laughs> Yeah. Talk about, talk about a checkmate question. <laughs> like, like, like you're just like, Oh, snap. Invisible to whom there's clearly like some of this book that's, that's missing a huge glaring. <laughs> and I wanted to say too, that uh, your fun facts page on your website is fucking awesome. Like, I think, <laughs> I think it's so great. And I was like, Thank wow, you. we need to, we need to think more seriously about our lives and like, find out what our fun facts are you know what i'm saying like like i think there's something so so beautiful about not only knowing that for yourself but being like proud to share it as well and it's also like a gold mine for these you know more fun questions so like what would you say is your least favorite food is there a food that you just really hate more than the than the rest i know i'll get my black card taken away but i can't <laughs> stand okra Oh, <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. Fried. <laughs> not not even fried. No, and everyone says you haven't had it fried. You haven't had my okra. You haven't had it in my gumbo. You have. It's like no, I've tried it. No, they didn't soak it well because then it won't be snotty and something like no. It's a weird soak- food. It's kind of. <laughs> yeah. It kind of tastes like you would think uh, like hey looks like it. <laughs> you know what i'm saying it's like a horse chewing it's oh, so, and, and it, it's so funny because um there's some pickled okra in our fridge now and it's been there for a minute and i've tried to get rid of it and you know uh you know my daughter's like well won't you put it out for when we have appetizers like no one's gonna eat it like nobody likes okra in this house like why are we why is it taking up real estate in our fridge so it's interesting. I mean, I have a long list and it is a textural thing, but I have a long list. My people, when people invite me to dinner, um, you know, people just, I'm just like, don't even ask. Like, uh, here's what I'm allergic to. I'm allergic to melon. I'm allergic to avocado and I'm allergic to eggplant. Everything else I'll eat around it. So Yeah. See, that's the thing. <laughs> that's the thing in our family is that like everybody like loves avocado except for me. 
And it's like, <laughs> it's like an like annual tradition where somebody's like, oh, this avocado, this guacamole is so good. Jen, you gotta keep going. Like, no. <laughs> like, we've been over this a million times. <laughs> That's <laughs> funny. Every week. Yeah. <laughs> What about what about some of these bad 70s songs? Oh, I have so many in my head. And it's so funny because um, I was thinking of the one, you know, how much love do you need before you give your love to me? How much time before it goes? How much love I want to know? And I'm like, why is that song in my head? Uh, you know, take it to the limit. Most of them are, you know, like oh, people, they're not a whole lot of um, bad black songs from the 70s, you know. <laughs> what is, what but, is your... What is your go-to karaoke pick if you have? <laughs> if if I could sing, <laughs> oh man, I think it would. If I could sing, it would probably be "Back Down Memory Lane." You know, um, oh. so Any rivers, I oh. yeah, but wow. I can't sing, so I'm, <laughs> I know. I mean, she's she's hitting them dog dog notes though. No. She's like breaking glass up in that song. Oh, yeah, exactly. So oh, and and I, so that would be reach for the stars. I think um Chelsea Morning, Joni Mitchell's Chelsea Morning would be like more attainable, but still not attainable. So but and I don't even have an attainable because I really can't sing. So <laughs> maybe Teddy Pendergrass because he's just talking. <laughs> I actually was at a karaoke bar like last 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 week and that's why I asked and there was in a, Oxford yes yes there was an older black <laughs> man that went up and started singing uh turn off the lights by Teddy and it was oh it was bright <laughs> like he shut the club down if, I, if I'm being real like it was oh so my yeah, all the, like I lives and just like <laughs> Right. right, just like turn them off. Immediately, I was like, oh. <laughs> "That must have been so surreal." It it really, it really, it really was. <laughs> wow. No, I was just I was just out on the waterfront, and this uh, older older black man was out with this big ass speaker, and you know like the sun is setting and he just starts playing like he's playing like some like you know like pop songs or whatever and then the sun right as it's going down you just hear like the intro to a change is gonna come and then, oh wow I was with my sister oh, and you're like is he about to do this like is he really about to do this and he hit that <laughs> shit and like everybody, uh, <laughs> everybody's like around in the park listening like you know people start clapping when he finishes somebody says encore it's my birthday he plays the song again i was like oh man another level <laughs> bold right here i was like i was like i need to get to this level i love the bringing your own speaker thing though that I know. is um... yeah radio oh man i got him right there hold on can you see him oh snap <laughs> wow what a that's yeah. What is, what is something that just excites you about, about the world now? Uh, I have to say young people. I can't say it enough. They are taking 
no prisoners. I mean, yeah. everything from don't let me mess up somebody's pronoun. And it can be like the most um, conservative, you know, church going or right wing kid. And they're like, they're a they. And I'm like, I'm sorry, <laughs> you know, to, 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 you know, kids saying to young people saying, um, I'm not going to leave this world. Y'all left us to our, my grandchildren. And, you know, the hope that they have, that they'll have grandchildren, you know, to the fact that they believe deeply that they can fix this to the fact that they're fixing it. And it like, it just blows my mind. I remember, um, you know, the reason when my daughter was choosing a college, she only applied to Spelman and Howard because she grew up in New York and she went to PWIs all her life, right? Um, and and that's and she went to a public school all her life, but she went to New York has the highest rate of segregated schools in the country. So, you know, if you were going to go to a decent school, it was going to be predominantly white. Um, and she's like, I'm not doing this. I did it for 12 years. I'm going to an HBCU. Um, but before she left their school, like they they organized a walkout around segre the segregated schools. And, and then they, you know, around climate change. And these kids poured out of the windows from all over the country. And, and I, you know, I just love the fact that um, I was wrong. I was wrong about social media, right? <laughs> like, I was like, you're on your phone. That's a waste of time. That's dumb. And then it's like, look what we just did. Look how we rocked the vote with social media. Look how we organized these walkouts with social media. Um, you know, look how we're changing the world. And so I just feel like I think that the reason that it makes me so excited is that selfishly, I'm like, we're going to be okay. You know, that, that you guys are doing this stuff that it's going to be okay. And, and, and that I think that there was a time when I thought young people were kind of um, just not engaged in this way and almost um, like depressed, right? And repressed. And, and it's like, no, they were doing things. They were, it wasn't stuff that I could understand or see, but it was happening. So then when big things started happening, I'm like, okay, I see y'all. So I think that when, when I, look to where my hope is, um, that's where it is. Cause I just got an email um, from someone in Ohio for an award ceremony. And, and they're like, well, the ceremony is gonna be in person. We're gonna ask people to wear masks, but we're not gonna require it. I'm like, what fresh hell is this? What, what about the Delta variant do people not understand? Like, what about wearing masks? Do people not understand that it's protecting all of us, right? Um, and so, so that, and I'm like, okay, that's grownups. Like that's the language I'm not speaking right now. <laughs> but it, but it is so interesting to watch this divide, you know, and be on the wrong side of it, right? <laughs> but also be able to bear witness to the right side. Mm. Mm. Wait, what? Uh, what? What county is that award happening in? It's in Columbus. It's in my hometown. <laughs> the county. I know I wrote back I'm like okay I'm gonna be there but I'm gonna be masked up with my glasses on and I ain't hugging nobody wow. so I just want y'all to know and I'm putting that out there right now but it's bananas it makes no sense and they're like we're gonna be so and then I you know I was asked to speak in Indiana and I um and they're like well there's going to be a mingle before the talk and I'm like who's mingling we are in a pandemic <laughs> 
<laughs> but it's just this kind of like, what is going on with the denial? And I understand wanting things to be the way they were, but they ain't. <laughs> like, yeah, it's crazy. I know. I know. I, I, I mean, I have no idea. Like folks will literally be doing studies for years though on the effect of this pan, 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 pandemic on, on us, just mental, mental health wise, like just being here in um, college still and like seeing all, all, of, all of my classmates, like everyone has really been impact, impacted in different ways to where even talking to folks now just feels different. It's, there is just a, a real weight. Um, so yeah, it will it will be interesting just to see in the years to come what this uh, has really done. And, and and right, there are just so many culture wars now. It feels like over everything, like mask wearing, vaccine, of course. Like, yeah, it's just wild time, a wild time. What are you guys excited about? Mm. Yeah, Jen and I. Oh uh, no, I'll speak for myself first. Um, so with reading particularly, right, and this, and this is why I asked you this, like, we are so, so excited about this project that we're doing here, Real, Real Ballers Read, because we want to make reading just, like, as natural and fun as, like, listening to music is. Because, right, we, we, we really just feel like, again, like, reading is kind of ruined in a lot, in a lot of ways by, by school, um, making it into this thing that you again should do and not want to do and really just enjoy like like why not be entertained by stuff that we also feel you know educated by um, and I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about just seeing where it goes um, seeing if the message does resonate with the folks still and um, it's really I don't know I'm just I, I'm so pumped about it and just ready to get out of college and dedicate a lot a lot more time 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 to it so um, it's but that's so a very great. small, corner, small corner, corner of the world yeah and yeah i i feel i feel, I feel like too uh, in the past couple of years i've gone from being really really cynical about everything to just wanting to think about the things that i can control and impact and stuff that i care about um because at the end of the, the day, I was just, you know, kind of feeling sad. I'm like, you know what? We at least can try, you know, we at least can try. So that's, that's, that's where the room for, for hope is. And I'm very excited now for a yeah. lot. And, uh, you know, kind of like tailing into what Miles was saying, we, we were wrong about social media too, partly, right? Because we went through, we went through several years, like I went through three years of college um, and like deleted all of my social media. I, I hated it. I hated how I felt worse every time that I got off of it. Um, and, you know, I definitely did need that, that cocoon, right. That self-protective like space where I could really just, you know, develop my, my sense of like interior self and whatnot. Um, but, you know, as Miles and I got more excited about like real ballers read and really like, expressing ourselves sticking our necks out there and just connecting with more people um it became clear that you know social media is like one way of doing that especially when we were in this pandemic and it's like you know you don't really have many other options um and, and so i think you know i'm generally excited for just 
you know, that sense of like connection with more people. Um, and we've always gotten that through books. Uh, but the more that we like, the more people that we talk to through this podcast or just like, you know, I, I'll run randomly run in to somebody who I like kind of knew, and then we hit it off. And I live for moments like that, where you're able to see that, you know, that whole time that I thought I was alone, like I really wasn't, you know, and I think that's a really, those are always healing moments for me. Um, and I'm really excited for them and like expanding them and sharing them with more people. Um, cause you know, we, we definitely, we're not out of the woods, like shit's about to get hard. Shit's about to get weird. Uh, but I would say that with every struggle so far, um, you know, I, I, I honestly do take it as like a sign of health, uh, you know, when I am feeling sad or overwhelmed and, you know, hurt because it shows that I still have feelings. Right. And I know that things um, are not supposed to be this way. And like, we don't have to let them continue to be this way. And so when I like really stick with that truth and, you know, like have it affirmed by like other people, my age or, or older or younger, like, it's just a beautiful thing. And so, yeah, yeah, I guess just coming out of college, we're both at this point of just being excited about our lives and, and this unfolding and this growing. That's so awesome. <clears throat> you know, my better half is a physician and she says when, you know, patients come in and they're like, I'm fine. I'm fine. She's like, okay, what is going on? She's like, in this moment, if people are not up in their feelings, like then something is wrong with them. You know, if we're not feeling sad and like kind of struggling in this moment, then we need to yeah. look a little deeper. Right. I mean, because I think that was one of the first lessons learned of this pandemic for me. I mean, first of all, that I'm like incredibly grateful for like family and, you know, having a relatively safe environment. Um but second was that like, I'm not okay if like society is not okay, right? Like no one, no individual is, is okay and fine um, when, when everyone, the community isn't. Um, and I think I always knew that, but this like, it really came to the fore, you know, just in this last year. And so understanding that, being more comfortable sharing my own, you know, like uh, my own, you know, just living with depression sometimes, it's like, you know, it just makes it a lot easier to actually connect and heal as a community when you recognize that this is a communal process, right? And I think that's where stories and books come in again, because that's how we communicate with each other, you know. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Book That Blank podcast. You can find Jacqueline Woodson's books any place books are sold. But I've heard that the reading experience is even better when you buy them from a local bookstore or check them out at your local library. Leave a review of the podcast if you enjoyed the show. And as always, catch you next time.